one of the greatest joys of being in the ministry. It, it comes when there are moments that you can rejoice with church members and with community members as they call you and you celebrate in the birth of a new child. Another joy in ministry that I have the privilege of, of serving in is when we get to unite a Christian couple in marriage and we see how God brings those two together. But I'll tell you that the greatest joy that I've had in ministry, it happens every now and then. In fact, it happened this morning at 9 o'clock, and that's when I have the opportunity to meet with a child to trust Jesus as their Savior, and then to see mom and dad sitting next to them with the big grin on their face, knowing this is the most important job that I had, was to lead my child to faith in Christ. Last Sunday, um, Vicki Alloway took a picture that now is probably my favorite picture in ministry, and it's on the screen here, I believe, and you saw it in my weekly word. This was last Sunday after his son was being baptized. Charles took his son Charlie, and right as he comes out of the baptistry, you see everything in that expression of this is what matters. More than anything else, this is what we live for as mom and as dad and as grandparents. But you know, in, in all honesty, there are also moments in ministry that, that aren't as much fun. There are times that you receive the call from that loved one and they say that their pregnancy, that it ended in a miscarriage. There are times that you receive a phone call and they say, well, pastor, the, the spot the doctor found a few weeks ago, it, it is cancerous. There are times they call and say that tumor, it is malignant. The last five years that I've been here, some of the sweetest and most tender moments that I've had as the pastor has been as, as I've watched a loved one who has faithfully and lovingly cared for their spouse all the way up until the point to which they saw Jesus face to face. Now, beyond a shadow of a doubt, they and probably their children, maybe their grandchildren, they prayed. They probably even begged God, would you please heal my loved one? Would you do a miracle here on this earth so that your name would be glorified? But for some reason, maybe that we'll never know on this side of eternity, God chose that it was their time for them to be with him in all of eternity. And I think that if we're honest, and I think that it's fair to say that many of us have asked, if God is so loving and if God is so powerful, then why did he allow my child to be born with this disability? I think if we're honest, we've probably asked the question, if God, if you are so loving and you are so powerful, why is it that my child struggles with autism? Why is it that my loved one is depressed? If you're so loving and you're so powerful and you have the ability to do whatever you can do, why is it that I struggle with anxiety? God, if you are so loving and you are so powerful, why did you allow my child to die in my womb? I'll be honest with you. I've asked some of these exact same questions myself. And while we know the Bible gives us somewhat of an answer and that it says that because we live in a fallen world, the results of living in a fallen world will be that we will deal with some of these natural consequences through life. But friends, I think that as we study Scripture, 
I think that God gives us a more specific answer, um, more than just admitting that we're sinners, more than just admitting that we live in a sinful world, and because of that, we will deal with sin, we will deal with illness, we will deal with suffering and hardship, that we'll continue to deal with natural disasters and tragedies. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn with me to John chapter 9. In this passage today, in John chapter 9, we're going to look at the first seven verses. And in this, we're going to see that John is going to tell the story of a powerful God who can actually take our sin and who can take our suffering and actually use it for His divine, for His greater purposes. So if you have your Bibles and you've got them open to John chapter 9, and even if you don't, the words will be on the screen. Let's stand together in honor of the reading of God's holy and inspired Word. John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And as he passed by, he saw, meaning Jesus, a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he sped on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. See, sickness and suffering that is often associated with sickness, it's long been a confusing reality for those of us here on this earth. And before we are too quick or before we're too harsh on these disciples to say, how in the world could they have asked this question, understand that even today, I think if we're honest We struggle with how we are to interpret what is the meaning or what is God's purpose around why he allows certain things to happen to us or our loved ones. How are we to make sense of what sometimes we never would ask for ourselves or for our loved ones? So in this passage we read... It says that Jesus, remember he had just left the temple. He had just finished the Feast of Tabernacles. And as he's leaving, it says that he passed by a man that had been blind. And how long had he been blind? Since when? Since birth. He had been blind since birth. So chances are, since this man had been blind since birth and he was never allowed inside the temple because he was a disabled man, chances are most of the people in the town knew who he was. Not only was he blind, but because he was blind and was unable to probably do a lot of the task of the day, then chances are that he was desperately poor, which tells us that he was a beggar. So life had been terribly difficult for this blind beggar. But then Jesus sees this man. And then in verse 2, Not only does Jesus see this man, but the disciples see this blind man. And look at the question that they ask in verse 2. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? 
And while this question is critical, and we're going to spend a significant amount of time trying to dissect not only the meaning, but what's behind and what's Jesus' answer to this question, the story doesn't begin with this question. In fact, the story doesn't even begin by the fact that the disciples see this blind man. It goes back even further. Who was the first person to see the blind man? It was Jesus. It says that Jesus saw this man, and the word in the Greek when it says saw means that he looked intently at this man. He didn't just pass by, but he saw him, and it's as if he looked deeply, and he paused, and he stopped to see this man who had been blind since birth. See, church, the disciples, they are interested in this man. Why? Because Jesus was first interested in this man. Now, I'll make a, take a quick time out and step away from the text. I'm going to come back to it in just a minute. If you and I want to know how we can be more like Jesus, if we are looking for just simple, practical ways that we can be more like Jesus, I think we can learn right here. I love the fact that Jesus engaged in conversation with this man who had a disability. Remember, in Jesus' day, even more than today, those who were born with disabilities, they were considered what? They were outcast. People would avoid them. And yet Jesus does the exact opposite. So if you and I want to be more like Jesus, we don't ignore those with disabilities. We don't look down upon them. No, we move towards them. We listen to them. We learn from them. We love them. And we want to be more like Jesus. We don't move away, but we move towards those who have disabilities. Back to our text here. What's the question that the disciples asked Jesus. They asked him, who was it that sinned? Someone must have sinned in order for this man to be blind from birth. Even by their simple question, it's proof that they subscribe to the old Jewish belief that said if someone is born or if someone has some kind of sickness, some kind of illness, some kind of hardship, it is the result of someone's personal sin. But there's a problem here. And the problem was that since this man had been blind since birth, this created some sort of tension in the mind of the disciples. Because it couldn't have been the man who sinned because he was born this way. So are you telling me that this man is having to suffer his entire life because of something that his parents did? Well, the disciples, I mean, the, the, the people that are Jewish people here, they can't reconcile this in their mind. So this tension that they have, it it comes to the question, here's the question, whose sin is it that caused this illness? So they come to Jesus with this question, hoping, hoping that somehow Jesus can make sense of this confusing situation. Now again, before we are so quick to pile on the disciples for this question that they ask, Before we're so quick to say, how in the world could they ask such a question? Friends, it is true, isn't it, that sometimes a specific illness is the direct result of a sinful choice, right? Let me take a step further. It is true that sometimes that we see that children are forced to suffer the natural consequences of their parents' sinful choice. I don't have time to go into a list of them, but you know exactly what I'm talking about. Sometimes that children have to suffer because of a choice that their parents have made. Now, perhaps the disciples were thinking back to an Old Testament passage of Scripture when they're trying to decide, is this man being punished because of his parents' sin? It comes from a verse in Exodus chapter 20, 
verse 5. Chances are you've heard this verse before, but it says this. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. Now listen here. The point that Moses is making right here in this verse is he is saying that the effects of the wicked generation, they will flow into the following generations. But the idea that a child will be punished because of the sins of his or her parents, friends, that is a concept that is just foreign to Scripture. Now again, we all know that the successive generations, that's what it means when it says to the third and fourth generations, that they have had to suffer the natural consequences of their parents' sin. Give you an example. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew children had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, some of which it wasn't because of their disobedience, but it was because of whose? Their parents' disobedience. Let me try to make this a little more relevant for you. Chances are, in five to ten years, someone in this room will call me. They'll email me and they'll say, Pastor, I don't know how this happened, but my son, my daughter is no longer going to church. My son and my daughter, I don't know why, but they left the faith. They're no longer, faith is no longer important to them. Will you do something about it? What can I do to get them back in church? And to that moment, I'll bite my tongue and I'll say, here's some things that you can say to them. Here's, I'll pray for you on that. Here's some, here's some opportunities that you can speak into them about why it's important to have like-minded people, especially if they have children. But friends, what I'll be thinking, again, I won't be saying this, all right, just what's going on in my head, is what I'll be thinking is, of course they're not in church. You didn't make it a priority when they lived with you. You came up with plenty of excuses when they were in your home that church was not a priority in your life. You were so quick when they were living with you to not go to church because it was a long weekend. The game went too long. It was too cold. It was too rainy. We have a lake house. It's, the, it's a vacation. And you made all of these excuses why not to go to church. And what I want to say to them, believe me, I'm not going to say this, okay? I'm saying this to you, not to them. But what I want to say is mom and dad, they're just following your lead. Congratulations. They have learned exactly what you were teaching them, whether it was with your words or with your actions. Now, of course, I would never say that out loud, okay? <laughs> now, listen, I'm not trying to sound as if here's a formula, and all you have to do is follow this formula, and if you come to church every Sunday, and you bring your kids to church, and they're going to follow the... It doesn't work that way. Many of you are examples of that. You did faithfully bring your kids to church. You did live out your faith in front of your children, but they made the choice not to follow the Lord, and that is not your fault. But what I'm saying is that the children, they will understand what's a priority in your life, and they will many times follow your lead. Back to our text. How is it that Jesus answers this question that the disciples bring to him? Verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now take note of what Jesus does here. In this moment, Jesus categorically denied the assumption that the disciples made that this man's sickness was directly tied to his past or something that he had sinned in the past. Now, of course, again, 
sometimes the results of what we deal with are because of what we have done in the past. But here's what I'm trying to get to you. Here's what I want you to understand. And that is while the existence of sin in the world is the cause of suffering in the world, there is not always, keyword always, a direct link between specific suffering and personal sin. Now, not only does Jesus deny this theory in verse 3, that this man was, was blind because of sin, but he says the purpose of why this man was blind was why? For God to display his power through him. Jesus then goes on to explain how he is the light of the world. And it says that he spits into the ground, he makes some mud, he puts the mud on um, the man's eyes, he goes and he washes in the pool of Siloam, and he comes back what? Seen. Now, let's go back just one chapter in chapter 8. We spent several weeks in chapter 8. It's one of the most important things up to this point that Jesus has said about himself. Do you remember that? It was at the Feast of Tabernacles. It was the end of the feast where they had the four large candelabras that were a little bit above the, the walls of the temple. And when they would light those torches, it would light the entire temple. Not only that, but it would light much of the city of Jerusalem. And there was a huge uh, a feast and dancing and a celebration. And at the moment that those, those torches were extinguished, Jesus cries out in the loud voice. He says, I am what? The light of the world. And then after Jesus leaves, we didn't read this, but at the end of chapter 8, they actually try to stone Jesus. And as he's leaving, this is what happens, the temple. See, what Jesus is doing here is he is illustrating the fact that he truly is the light of the world. Think about it. Jesus heals this blind beggar who had been living in what his entire life? He had been living in darkness. But now, once this man follows Jesus' lead, once he feels Jesus's, think about what this would be like to feel Jesus' hands upon his face. Once this happens, he then sees sunlight for the very first time. He experiences the light of the world. But there's an even deeper illustration here. There's an even deeper meaning that's not just true for that blind man, but it's true for every single one of us. See, the man to whom Jesus gave sight, that explains our spiritual condition before Jesus came and touched our life. That's who we were before Jesus came to us and gave us light. We were living in the midst of eternal darkness. Let me try to put this as simply as I can. Every single one of us, every human being is born sinful and alienated from God. Just as that man had been blind ever since his birth. So let me make this practical. Who did God use in your life to shine the light of Jesus into your life so that your eyes were opened and that you came to faith? Maybe it was your parents. Maybe it was through their example. It was through their Bible reading. It was through the, their testimony that you came to faith in Christ. Maybe it was a teacher. Perhaps it was a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it was when you were a teenager and someone was bold and brave enough to invite you to church. And because you accepted that invitation, Jesus shone his light upon you and you were saved. Maybe it was even during a personal crisis that you trusted Christ as your Savior. 
However it happened, friends, listen, Jesus touched you and Jesus opened your eyes so that you would begin to know him. But let me again make this more practical. How has God used you? How has God used your life? How has God used the the sphere of influence that he has given you to reveal his truth to someone else? Because listen, God didn't open the eyes of your heart. God didn't give you sight. God didn't save you so that you'd experience the salvation to yourself. No, he gave you sight. He came and he opened your eyes of your heart so that you would have salvation, so that you would then go and that you would have a heart for your lost and dying friends and family members and coworkers, and you would go out and you would passionately and you would boldly share, this is what Jesus has done in my life, and I can't keep it to myself. Let me share what Jesus has done for me, and he will do it for you too. Let's go back to the question that we started with this morning. See, sadly, many of us, we still live with the assumption that there's a direct correlation between our sin and what we struggle with. There's a direct correlation between our sin and our sickness and our suffering. Just like the disciples, we are quick to assume that someone is sick. Why? Because of something they must have done in their past. And now God is just getting even with them. See, I don't believe that. Think about the last time you went through a difficulty. Think about the last hardship that you suffered. How long did it take for you in your mind to go, well, I, I'm struggling with this because God is getting me back for X. Well, the reason that I have this situation is, well, I, I deserve it because of what I did in my past. It's why. Why do we think this? Why do we always want to assume that, be, that God is out to get us and that because of X, this is why what happens? I think it's because deep down we want to be in control of our life. I think it's because deep down we want to be responsible even if it is for a negative result. I think deep down we want to have an answer for everything that happens in our lives. See, as harsh as it may have been, for those disciples to say that man that was blind, well, the reason that you're blind is because of the sin of your parents. If we're honest, that makes a little bit more sense than saying, well, it's because we live in a fallen world, and because we live in a fallen world, there will be illness, there will be tragedies that you have to suffer. But friends, according to our text this morning, while we may be in control of of a good portion of our health, we all know that we do not control everything that happens to our bodies. Friends, because we live in a fallen world, because we have fallen genes, because we don't have full control over our health, here's the bad news. The bad news is, whether we like it or not, sickness can and will come sometimes without direct correlation to how we believe or how we think or how we act. That's the bad news. But I'm not going to leave you the bad news. Because there's good news too. The good news is that although we live in a world that is filled with illness, in a world that's filled with suffering and hardships and difficulties, the good news is that God has the ability to bring good even out of evil. See, friends, there are no easy answers as to why God allows you or your loved one to experience specific hardships. I know in my head, I know the pastoral answers. 
I know that God allows hardships in our lives because that makes us long and and suffer and and look more like him because we long for him. I know that he allows us to suffer because that makes us long for heaven where there is no sorrow, there is no suffering, there is no pain. But friends, I cannot with full certainty tell you, and by the way, neither can anyone else tell you why God allows certain things to occur in your life or your loved one's life. I think we have to be okay saying there are some things that we will not understand on this side of eternity until we see Jesus face to face. I love the way the Apostle Paul puts it. He says this in 1 Corinthians 13. Now we see things how? Imperfectly. Like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then, praise God for this, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything. Here's the key word again. But then when we're face to face with Jesus, I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. Church, here's what I do know. What I do know is that God can and he will use that which is causing us to suffer, to strengthen us and to bring glory and honor to his name. Remember, Jesus says the purpose of this man's illness was what? It was to bring glory and honor. It was to make God's name known. But here's the mistake that I think we too often make. We think that the only way that God can receive honor, we think the only way that God can receive glory through our illness or through our suffering is if he performs a miracle. Now, praise God, he does do miracles. And yes, he does receive honor and he does receive glory when he miraculously heals someone. That's exactly what happens in our text here in John chapter 9. Now, do I believe that God can and God does still heal people miraculously? Do I believe at any moment that he can still perform a miracle? Absolutely, beyond a shadow of a doubt. But friends, that does not mean that he will always choose to heal. That does not mean that he will always perform miracles. A miracle. Yes, the works of God can most certainly be displayed through healing. It's exactly what happened for this blind man. But friends, listen to me. The works of God can equally be displayed in us through our illness, can be displayed through our times of suffering. I believe there is no greater proof of God's power and his grace than when he gives a person supernatural strength in the midst of the pain and suffering. I believe with all of my heart that the faithful endurance of those who are dealing with pain and suffering, those that have the testimony, those that have the heart that desires to honor God, to point people to Jesus, even in the midst of that trial, I believe that even brings God greater glory than if he did perform a miracle. God displays his works in us when we trust him, even when we don't understand. God displays his works in us when we believe, even when we want to doubt. God displays his works in us when we value the next life, our eternal life, more than we value this life. God can display his works in us when we endure, when we believe, when we hope, when we worship, when we sing, when we pray, when we uh, continue to question, when we continue to love and we live with this disease even when he could heal us. So, do I think that we should pray for a miracle if we have some tragedy that hits our life? Should we pray 
for God to, to bring healing, even if it happens to us or to a loved one? Absolutely. With all of my heart, I believe that Jesus wants us to boldly come before his throne. I believe that he desires for us without apology to say, God, I know that you're able. This is what I'm praying. Would you perform a miracle here? But friends, we must equally understand that even as we are praying for physical healing, it is far more likely that he will give us the ability to endure through the illness than to save us from that illness. Now listen, I know this isn't the message you wanted to hear. I know this isn't the message that's going to make a church grow by leaps and bounds. That's why you hear all these television preachers, and they'll say, oh, well, God's going to heal you. All you got to have a little bit more faith. Just believe. Just do this, and God's going to give you that miracle. The only problem I have with that is I wonder if any of these television pastors have ever visited hospital rooms. Have any of these health and wealth pastors sat in the room with a faithful church member who's watching as their loved one struggles to breathe? Have they ever sat there in ICU watching as someone's body is wrecked by cancer or mind is gone because of Parkinson's or Alzheimer's? And then, how do they answer the question, why didn't God heal? I, I promised them if they just had enough faith, if they just believed a little bit more than God, how do they, how do they reconcile that? See, a smile, a promise, an encouragement, might sell a few books. It might even make that person feel good in the moment. But it just doesn't work when you are walking with a loved one before they see Jesus face to face. Friends, I wish I could tell you that God's going to remove whatever thorn in your flesh. I wish I could promise you just pray and I believe that God's going to remove the cancer. He's going to take away the illness. I wish more than anything I could promise you that whatever your child is suffering with, if you pray, God will wipe it away. But I can't. And according to our text this morning, the goal of Jesus is what? To do the works of God. In church family, the works of God are far more complex. They are far more intentional, and they are far more eternal than our own desires. We live in a fallen world. And as a result, illness is all around us. But thanks be to God that one of the glorious effects of the gospel is that God can use even our sickness, even our suffering for his glory. Friend, he may choose to heal you. But he also may choose to give you the endurance while you're going through that trial. But whatever he wills, understand that we worship a God who walks beside us. We worship a God who is not unfamiliar with pain and suffering. And as after I pray, as we are about to celebrate through the Lord's Supper, 
We worship a God who bore our sin, who bore our iniquities on the cross. And it is through his suffering that we have life. And we have life eternal. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your promise that you will never leave us, that you will never forsake us. That no matter what trial, no matter what hardship, no matter what illness we may go through or we may walk through that trial or that time of suffering with our loved one, that we know that you walk with us and that you will help us endure through it. Lord, thank you for the promise and the assurance of eternal life, the life that we cling to because we know that we are not citizens here on earth, but we long for our eternal home when we will understand completely where we will see you face to face and we will be made whole once again. Lord, would you receive honor and glory in our lives? when we're on the mountaintops? But we also give you praise. Would we also give you glory when we're in the valley of the shadow of death? We thank you for Jesus, for he is our hope. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.